Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Well, there's a bridge and there's a river that I still must cross as I'm going. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Melanthi host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. That's Step by Step by Whitney Houston, her cover of an Annie Lennox song taken from the soundtrack to her 1996 film The Preacher's Wife. Like so many hits in Houston's career, Step by Step aimed to bridge her white and black fan bases. In this case, with a pop soul song by a white singer-songwriter recorded for a gospel-centered film about a black Baptist church. Step by Step hit number 15 on the Hot 100 and number 29 on the R&B chart in 1997. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to catch up with listeners, and enjoy some hit parade trivia. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Wesley Morris, Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, New York Times critic at large, and a friend and frequent guest on Slate Podcasts. I first encountered Wesley at Grantland, where he hosted the podcast, Do You Like Prince Movies? Now at The Times, Wesley writes about everything from music to film to cultural criticism, and he co-hosts the Still Processing podcast with fellow Times writer Jenna Wortham. Always a great listen. A couple of years ago, an episode Wesley and Jenna did about Whitney Houston helped inspire my own Hit Parade episode on her work. Wesley Morris, welcome to The Bridge. Thanks for having me. This is a real pleasure as a listener. I, you know, I've learned so much from you and the idea that Jenna and I did something that made you want to do something on this show is just, that's very cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's true. I, I, and you know, your episode appeared back in the spring of 2017 when, and I double checked this, it was when one of the two Whitney documentaries had come out. So the one by Nick Broomfield, uh, yeah. Whitney, Can I Be Me was out. And that's what you guys were responding to. And it was right around five years after she died. And the second documentary, which didn't come out until the summer of 2018, simply titled Whitney, you know, that was still to come. But I just thought what inspired me was you guys were, you were not avoiding the controversies or the scandals, but you were focusing on the music and the career. And frankly, you had some wonderful anecdotes in there, one of which I want to ask you about right now. Let's just put it on the table. When did you grow to appreciate Whitney Houston? And by the way, feel free to bring up Silver Spoons if you like. Oh, I mean, well, that was the first time I'd ever seen her. I think that was the first time. I I was at school when Merv Griffin was on in the afternoon, so I missed her singing home, right? There's a moment where the the father on the show, his best friend, has a new girlfriend, and the new girlfriend happens to be Whitney Houston. 
And so at the end of the episode, they all go, or I don't know if everybody goes, but somebody goes to the club. It's obviously the boyfriend is there. And Whitney Houston sings Saving All My Love For You. And listening to it now, or, you know, when we recorded that episode and we were doing the preparation for it, I was really struck. A, I was relieved to know my memory of that moment was true. Because sometimes I have false memories of cultural events. <laughs> so Don't we all. Thank God I was right. She looked exactly as I remembered her. But what I couldn't have appreciated as a, what was I, seven, six, seven, eight, mm-hmm. um, was the arrangement of that song is not the recorded, it's mm-hmm. not the album version. So I'm It is, it is sultrier. Um, she's a Russian doll of sound, right? She's a, like what she signifies is so many different things at the exact same moment. If she had put out that version of that song um, as a sing, if she'd sung it that way in the recorded version and not live. By the way, she sang it live on Silver Spoons. Um, wow. I don't know. It's just a totally... I mean, she's Anita Baker. She's not Whitney Houston. (laughs) Right. Which begs the question about crossover and what it means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because in essence, my focus in this episode and why I was... You know, I waited three years after your episode to do my own because I really had to think hard about this. But my focus was pinpointing when Houston crossed over and what that meant for both white and black listeners. I mean, and I was trying to gives context about what was expected not only of big crossover stars like a Michael Jackson, a Prince, a Lionel Richie, but what was also getting played on black radio during the 80s. Do you have a sense of what this Mm -hmm. meant, what crossover meant in the 80s and 90s and where the other crossover figures from that time fit in? I I was a big chart watcher and I can tell you that I was free. And I also had, I watched MTV and BET mm-hmm. uh, and VH1. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, 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 the lack of overlap among at least BET and MTV. This is an, a very important point you're making. Yeah, the lack of overlap, the, the way they were in different worlds. You're, please speak on that. They were just in completely different worlds. People who were stars to black people. It was just, I mean, you and I were talking before the recording about Bobby Womack. The Bobby Womack of like 1984, six to like 1990 was Freddie Jackson. <laughs> right. Mr. Slow Jam. I mean, there was a lot of crossover, but the question with a crossover, and, and you can probably define this better than I could, but it seemed like a crossover was a person who wasn't going to stay. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like a person who was just visiting. Um, and I'm thinking specific, like Freddie Jackson is a good, avert, good, good example of that. Lavert, I think, is mm, a really good yes. example of of a crossover like they came once they didn't really come back but they were all over black radio for years i guess this then segues into the whitney conversation because if if we assume that much of crossover is just visiting to borrow your term yet whitney crosses over and stays right michael jackson crosses over and stays lionel richie crosses over and stays what does that mean in terms of the black audience's relationship to these artists moving forward and what why does whitney in particular get that backlash that's some of what i was trying to pinpoint well none of her none of her biggest hits were in the top 10 of billboard's hot 
black singles chart. <laughs> but Michael, J- Michael Jackson was near the top. The year-end version, you mean. Mm-hmm. But where do Broken Hearts go? I mean, like, there is nothing black radio about that single except the power and, and, and blackness of the voice singing it. But it did get radio play because Whitney Houston was singing it. But it didn't fit with anything else on black radio. Like, mm-hmm. I was looking at that chart uh, for, what was it, 88? And Where Do Broken Hearts Go is the is the lamest sounding song on the chart. <laughs> I mean, there's something about in, in the Whitney episode that you did. You explain, there's a number of things that are just great turns of phrases, like uh, leaving no audience behind for how well I know. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, and then the idea that the, the, I want to dance with somebody is a quintessential, it is a quintessential eighties sounding thing, right? The video is a perfect eighties video. Um, she has, she has sort of essentially whitened herself. Uh, I mean, it's as white as she was ever going to like be presenting herself like as a, as a like skinny dippy blonde, right? Or blondish. Right. Down to the yep. hair. Yep. Yeah. And I th- I think the Whitney album was just, you know, there was nothing gospel about that album. But then that was a distinction I wanted to make between Whitney, the 87 album, and Whitney Houston, the 85 album, which is more of a, a gradual transition. And they're still sending singles, literally, thinking about you. They're st- you know, and leading with You Give Good Love, they're still sending breadcrumbs, for lack of a better term, to the black audience saying, no, no, this is for everybody. And they're not, you know, going for the jugular on pop crossover right away. But once they do on the second album, it's kind of off to the races. And that's the distinction I wanted to make. It's yes. like, when did that yes. happen? When did it reach some form of exit velocity where suddenly I find Greatest Love of All, for example, which is actually the last single released on Whitney Houston, the 85 album, goes to number one in the middle of 86. I find that so fascinating because here's a record that was written for a Muhammad Ali biopic <laughs> and was originally sung by George Benson that is better loved now by a white audience than a black audience because it's as if the black audience suddenly got the memo, oh, wait a minute, maybe this is not for us. And that 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 was what I was trying to get at. Yeah, I also think that black people had to sing that song a lot more than any other race of people. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> it was a it was a school graduation song. It was a school assembly song. It was anthemic wow. in in ways that like I if I never hear that song again, I'll be okay. That <laughs> was true for true of that and one moment in time. I don't know if you were subjected to singing one moment in time in in school, but can't say I was. We had to sing that a lot. And I think that, you know, the arrangements of those songs is setting aside how Whitney had to figure out how to sing them for herself are very appealing sing-along songs in in some ways because they're not arranged in a black vernacular at all. They're generic. Hmm. And the thing that sort of makes mm-hmm. them special is only Whitney Houston singing them. There's nothing musically interesting about any of those songs. Speaking of singing... You and Jenna did a great job in the episode analyzing Whitney's vocal gifts. You even call her the best singer ever. I know. I think about that all the time. Now, did this was this a double-edged sword? Did this have a downside in terms of relatability? You seem to be implying that. Did it set a bar for her career that proved hard for anybody to live up to, including her? <sighs> this is a great question because 
I think the thing that makes her the greatest singer of all time in the in the in the in the rock and roll era anyway, she could sing she's a little bit like Nat King Cole. She could sing the blandest hmm. shit and make it sound really beautiful. And and not just beautiful in a generic way. And this is the thing that really drives me nuts about this, about like how black is Whitney. And I know as a person who has been, you know, I was raised having my blackness questioned by black people. And there's something about this question of authenticity and how it has to course, it has to sort of operate in a particular way, right? Like, it's true that w- it's it's crazy that, that Where Do Broken Hearts Go was the song that was nominated uh, in that category because it, like we, if we as we've discussed, it is pretty generic. Um, but it's a testament to her vocal ability and her and her arrangement of that song um, that it also just I love trying to sing that song. Like, again, getting to the bridge and that stutter she has. Where do broken hearts go? I'm, I just I'm sorry, you guys, but there's that break that she has toward the end. I mean, she was just really having fun with these these boring ass songs. And that's what kind of made her exciting. But every once in a while, you get a song like uh, Thinking About You, which is my favorite song on that first album. <laughs> it is. A, it is. It's it's the funkiest song on the record. And it's very funky. it's the one it really is. It's yeah. And she's singing the R&B of the moment. Right. She, her, her register is right. down where everybody else's register is, and she can pick it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's got a yearning in it. It's got some, um, there's some grit and some sex. She wasn't always mm-hmm. doing that kind of singing on, I mean, it's so emotional. That second verse is so emotional. I got to watch you walk in the room, baby. I got to watch you walk out. And there's like a that she does. I mean, things like that. Um, she'll throw in a little bit. Yeah, she'll she'll put she'll put a little stank on a song just so you know that she can do it. Right. And white people, I don't know what white people heard when they heard her sing, <laughs> but as a black person, I'm like, well, she is clearly communicating to us. She is clearly trying to tell us she is still in the room. Right. And. I I don't know. I just feel like we were real. I mean, I think every black person who was hard on Whitney now is like, yeah, I think we might have been a little hard on our girl Whitney. Um, but I think that part of that was just that she was so enormously successful and popular with white people. Uh, I mean, with everybody. And it didn't matter how much signifying she did in the songs. The fact of the matter is, and, and as you you point this out, like people were just, they just, they don't, they didn't know why a person who was selling that well was, why, why take up space in black world when, you know, in African America, mm-hmm. when, when you own the rest of the country right now. Right. So... Whitney Houston is finally in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. I've I've watched enough artists go through a process of rehabilitation, you know, in the critical mind. It happened to Donna Summer when she was finally inducted a few years back. By the way, God bless you. One of my favorite episodes of of podcasting ever done was was your Thank Donna you. Summer episode. That that means a lot to me. I, I Donna is very personal for me. I grew up with her. I'm a I'm a Brooklyn boy, and you know, Italian on my mom's side. We Italians had this weird ownership of Donna. Oh, I know. That, <laughs> It's personal for me. But anyway, um, 
So even after all the drama, you know, is she finally respected? And she's got this higher love cover that's all over the radio. I heard it in the drugstore just the other day. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you made a hilarious point in your episode with Jenna that on a Rolling Stone list of the greatest singers of all time, she was one spot below, wait for it, Steve Winwood, whom she's now got a hit covering on the radio right now. I mean, oh my God, Chris, that list. (laughs) I know that list. Yeah, that was problematic. And she was still alive, by the way. That was 2010 when they compiled that list. F around. She could see that list. Yeah. Oh, that just kills me. Anyway, um, well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame argument, and I'm shocked that it's an argument. Like, me too. What are we arguing? Like, how how strict are you going to draw these lines? Right. Like, in my understanding of the way this always worked, and you can correct me if I'm speaking out of turn as a voter yourself, but I always associated the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame parameters as just being in the rock era. Right. I agree. Like, on what grounds do you discount Whitney Houston if Madonna's in there, too? Well, and to more to the point, if Aretha's in and Aretha was like a first ballot entry. Right. right? Nobody questioned Aretha. How are you even wondering why Whitney Houston's in the hall? How is that even a question? I don't understand that. You know, Uh, never mind the people who should be in the hall, like Roberta Flack and Dionne Warwick. Hello, her cousin. I mean, who are not who have never even been on Roberta Flack. That's 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 that is just that is I know. Right. And feel free to talk about the higher love cover if it means anything to you. It doesn't. You know, it doesn't. And I heard that I'm a really big, I do not enjoy posthumous music. I mean, I it's okay. She recorded it. It was going to be released in Japan. Yep. I mean, fine. It's. I actually thought when I heard it, like, Whitney, did you not think we were going to find out about this? Like, (laughs) we were going to find out someday. But- I, I have a really good friend, Bill Addison, who is who is among the great Whitney Houston aficionados. There are several in my life, uh, astonishingly high number, more than any other artist. And I think he really sort of gave me an appreciation for for not the Kygo version, but he found um, the original single or, you know, the, the B-side. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there is just some singing at the end of that record that just cracked me. I mean, it's just the sort of thing where, like, you hear her doing it and you just laugh. Because nobody has more fun. And this is the other, other thing about Whitney Houston. Now, I know that we're, we're, we're talking about the chart, but the, great, the greatest singing Whitney Houston ever did was live. All of her live singing. I mean, to go to a Whitney Houston concert and hear her rearrange these songs, see her spend eight minutes on one gospel number, just powerful. And just the way she would, like, get all up in a song. Man, what a genius. That's her legacy. Just genius. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And now comes the time in every Hit Parade The Bridge episode where we do some trivia. 
And joining me on the line from Jersey City, New Jersey, is Mike. Mike, are you there? I am, Chris. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm doing really well. Now, my understanding is you and I have actually met before because you came to my event in September at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right? That's right, yeah. So uh, you were there um, talking about your Woodstock episode as a tie-in with uh, the anniversary of Woodstock. And I believe your, your parents were there, and I was also there with my mom, um, who's also a fan of the show, and actually gave me this uh, Slate Plus uh, subscription. Oh, see, that's fantastic. So we have, <laughs> we have mom to thank for the reason that you are even able to be our trivia contestant this month. We do. <laughs> well, that's as good a time as any for me to remind everybody that while this bridge episode is available to all Hit Parade subscribers, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. That's slate.com slash hit parade sign up. Also, Mike, I should tell you that joining us on the line for this episode of The Bridge is Wesley Morris from The New York Times. Wesley, say hi. Hey, Mike. How are you? Hey, Wesley. I'm good. Thanks. Fantastic. So uh, you know how this works, Mike, but just to remind everybody, I'm going to ask you three trivia questions. The first will be a callback to our most recent episode of Hit Parade, and the next two will be a preview of our forthcoming episode of Hit Parade. Are you ready for some trivia? I'm ready. Excellent. Here we go. Question one. Last month, I ran down Whitney Houston's stunning chart records, including the first woman to debut at number one on the album chart with her Whitney album before the charts were computerized with the sound scan system. Only six albums total debuted on top before sound scan. Which of these was not one of them? A. Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. B. Prince, Purple Rain. C. Bruce Springsteen. Live or D. Michael Jackson. Bad. So I do not remember you mentioning B. Purple Rain. So I'm going to go with B. Prince Purple Rain. That is absolutely correct. Though it was a blockbuster, Purple Rain took four weeks to reach the top of the album chart. Whereas the Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen and Michael Jackson LPs all opened on top. Excellent, Mike. That's one down. You've got two to go. Are you ready for our preview trivia? I'm ready. All right. Here we go. Question two. All four of these artists performed live on the 1999 Grammy Awards. However, who among them went into the night having never scored a top 40 pop album or single and came away a superstar with number ones on both charts within three months? A. Britney Spears. B. Shania Twain. C. Alanis Morissette. Or D. Ricky Martin. Oh, man. Um... Chris, sorry, what year is this? 1999. 99, okay. Okay. 1999. Okay. Um, I think a couple of those artists you mentioned were already successful at that point, but I feel like 99 might have been the, the big year for Ricky Martin. So I'm going to go with D. Ricky Martin. And that would be correct. The correct answer is D, Ricky Martin. Yes. All three women were already platinum sellers and or chart toppers on Grammy night 1999. Ricky Martin, a Latin pop star, delivered an electrifying version of The Cup of Life, a.k.a. La Copa de la Vida. By May, he had America's top album and song. Spectacular. You're doing very well, Mike. Are you ready for question three? I'm ready. Here we go. Question three. 
During the Latin pop boom on the charts at the turn of the millennium, all four of these acts scored number ones on the Hot 100, but three did so in 1999, while one had to wait several years longer, who did not score a number one pop hit until the 2000s. A. Shakira B. Enrique Iglesias C. Jennifer Lopez or D. Carlos Santana all right, so the one that I remember a little further along possibly would it be, is it A, Shakira? You have done it. That is correct. Shakira did not issue her first English language album until 2001, and her first number one pop hit came in 2006 with Hips Don't Lie. Like Ricky Martin, all three of the others, Iglesias, Lopez, and Santana, topped the Hot 100 in 1999. Superb. You've run the table on the trivia. Well done, Mike. Nice job. That's great. Good job, Mike. Thank you very much. Thanks. So I understand you have a trivia question for me. Is that right? I do, yes. All right, ready? I'm ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) In the years 2000 to 2010, there were no Spanish language number ones on the Billboard Hot 100, but a few songs in Spanish did hit the top 40. Which artist had the most Billboard Top 40 hits in Spanish in the 2000s? Ooh. Is it A, Pitbull, B, Daddy Yankee, C, Shakira, or D, Ricky Martin? This is a great question because all four of those artists had numerous hits in the Top 40 during the 2000s, but the question is specifically who had them in Spanish. And... The only top 40 hit I remember Shakira having in Spanish is uh, actually my favorite single by her, the one she did with Alejandro Sanz, La Tortura. I love that record. But um, I don't think she had very many other Spanish language ones, so I'm going to eliminate her. And this is also the period where Pitbull is kind of a reggaeton star, but he's still singing in English a lot. So I think it's either Pitbull or Daddy Yankee. And I'm going to go ahead and say Daddy Yankee. That is correct. The answer is B, Daddy Yankee. Yes. He had four hits in the Billboard Top 40 by the year 2010, including 2004's Gasolina and 2007's collaboration with Fergie Impacto. Phew. I'm glad I puzzled that one out. Um, Wesley, did you have any idea? Because, man, I was just using deductive logic on that one. I would have guessed Daddy Yankee just because I don't ever... I mean, I don't know if I can count the number of times I've heard Pitbull do his thing in, in in Spanish. I mean, I have, but not in, in a big hit. Right. Uh, in a big U.S. hit. Um, Certainly not an all-Spanish hit. Right, right, right. Well, it was a good round for all of us, Mike. You got all of your questions right. I got my question right. So I just want to say thanks so much for being a Hit Parade listener and joining us on The Bridge. Thanks so much for having me. So as you could hear from those last two trivia questions, our next episode of Hit Parade will be about Latin pop crossover on the American charts. You know, this year's J-Lo and Shakira halftime show at the Super Bowl reminded us all of the power of Latin crossover. It was a big moment for Spanish-language artists, Latin pop. However, the Latin boom of 20 years ago, the one that made Ricky Martin famous, was kind of a half-step, the moment when J-Lo and Shakira became famous as well, because all of those hits were in English. By the late 10s, Spanish-language pop hits were starting to cross over on their own terms, and not necessarily by adding English verses, although of course that helped. And we will talk about how Spanish-language music has crossed over on the charts over multiple decades, right up to the present day. So look out for that in our next episode of Hit Parade. 
My thanks to Wesley Morris for joining me for this episode of The Bridge. Wesley, the best place for folks to read or listen to you is at the New York Times, right? And uh, are there other places folks should check you out? Uh, well, Jenna Wortham and I are going to do a live, still processing show at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, a.k.a. BAM, uh, in a month on April 9th. We're going to probably be t- we're going to be talking about things not unrelated to this show we're not we're not going to spend a lot of time with Whitney Houston or we're going to mention like one aspect of her uh but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the bodacious awesomeness of black women from like 1982 to about 1995 or 96 and connect that era or those eras to Lizzo and Megan the Stallion and Cardi B today that sounds amazing I look forward to that thanks again Wesley This episode of Hit Parade The Bridge was produced by Asha Saluja, and I'm Chris Malanfi. Keep on marching on the one. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.